welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, I'm very excited to have on the show Sally Ann Harper. We go over her career, have a career retrospective, and uh, all kinds of great lessons learned that you all can be inspired from. And uh, Sally Ann's been CFO at several agencies, also worked in the private sector. Um, She's uh, one of the founding members of Affirm for Enterprise Risk Management and uh, one of my mentors as well. So I think you guys will really enjoy this one. And without further ado, let's talk with Sally Ann. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm happy to have with us uh, Sally Ann Harper. Good morning, Sally Ann. Good morning, Paul. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, of course, we're doing this over the phone, so excuse any quality issues or anything like that out there. But um, we definitely wanted to have Sally, on, Sally Ann on today because we're kind of looking at a career retrospective, sort of a, a mentoring kind of discussion today because, uh, you know, I just think you've had a really amazing career and we want to share some of your lessons learned. So, um, so Sally Ann, why don't we just start off with a high level, just a little bit about your background, some of the positions you held, and then we'll kind of get into a little bit here. Okay. Um, well, I've had a 34-year federal career and then eight or nine years in the private sector and then quite a few years working with not-for-profits, primarily think tanks and good government organizations. I started in the federal government as a GS-5 small purchase clerk at the Navy shipyard in Philadelphia and spent uh, 11, 12 years with the Navy, eventually as a uh, supervisory contracting officer over major weapon system acquisition at the Naval Air Systems Command before moving to EPA to take over their Superfund program, which was having some difficulties at the time. I eventually became the CFO for the Environmental Protection Agency, and that was a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed position, but I retained my career status and then had my final 10 years in government with the Government Accountability Office before as the CFO and also head of management and administration as I had been at the EPA. Um, before moving on to become a vice president uh, and managing person uh, for a small disabled veteran-owned business, AOC Solutions. And now I am back in government uh, as an independent member of the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. And I do work with the Partnership of Public Service, AGA, Brookings Institution, and American University. So yeah. there you go. Great. No, it sounds like uh, a lot of the folks we've interviewed here, it sounds like uh, retirement didn't take too well with you. You had to keep yourself busy. Absolutely. I am not a person I can ever see retiring. What is wonderful, however, about not having a nine-to-five every day in the same office or with client kind of job is I have tremendous flexibility uh, on the assignments that I choose to take on and when I do that. so And it's all still revolving around public service, which I absolutely adore. Right, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute here. So uh, so I had about four, four areas I kind of wanted to cover with you today, but I really was kind of curious just to start from the very beginning. You know, what did you study in school? Did that, did you really, you know, did you have in mind a government 
a career? So maybe let's go back to the back back to the, your education there. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and so went to LaSalle University in, in Philadelphia, and my degree was in psychology. And so I had no notion of government career at the time. Instead, I was on my way to getting a doctorate in clinical psychology when I realized that it was not a field that I was cut out for. Um, so I dropped out of graduate school at Penn State and needed a job. Um, I had student loans to repay, even then, back in the day. And for those of you with student loans, you know, they start within a few months <laughs> of your leaving school. So um, I took what was then an exam, a federal exam, and managed to get a job at the Navy shipyard uh, in a career ladder program, 579, um, in learning basic contracting and procurement. So I wish I could say that my heart was driven by public service when I took my first government job, but instead it was driven by financial need and student loans. <laughs> that, uh, that said, I do want to say that the Navy's really smart about this, Paul. They go ahead and really capture you to the mission immediately. I had people come over, and I was just doing base procurement types of stuff for ships that were in port to be fixed, so buying widgets. And they came over and took me out to the ship to show me where those widgets would go and how it was being built in to the ship and how people's lives depended on what I bought and the quality of it. So the Navy just did a phenomenal job of, like, really marrying to mission, and I was hooked. For, for, from then on in, it was public service for me. Right, yeah, and I've heard you know similar stories. Even myself, I mean, I didn't plan to be in the government, but I, I needed a job out of school, and I, I got into the OIG uh, education, and I was just hooked as well because just fascinating, you know, doing audits and learning all kinds of interesting things. But um, so that sounds like a something that's pretty uh, pretty common. Government service definitely can bring you in. Um, so kind of. Along that subject matter, you know, uh, something we wanted to talk about was, you know, you started off in procurement, but obviously you had many different positions and jobs after that. And, uh, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you feel about the importance of gaining different experiences in, in, in your profession and just kind of move, even just moving around in your career? I am one of the people who believes that, Getting diversity of experience in your public service career is absolutely essential, both for you as a leader and an executive and for the agencies that you work for and contribute to. Um, within three years of my being uh, at the Navy shipyard, the folks for whom I was buying stuff convinced me that if I wanted a career in the Navy, I needed to go to the company town, and the company town for government was Washington. So sure enough, I went to Washington, I worked for the Naval Air Systems Command, and moved from doing the kinds of purchasing that I had been doing to really doing very sophisticated major weapon systems acquisition, which required cost analysis, price analysis, it required contract law, and again, here's where the Navy excels, Paul. They really train you. They send you away to school. They give you on-the-job training. They're rigorous in their assessments of you. And at Navair, it was an upper-out culture. So if you were not performing, you were strongly encouraged to leave. Um, but it was essential to me. By the time I had become 
you know, over a large team of people in doing major weapon systems acquisition, I was very fortunate to have been recruited to compete for a job at the EPA at the Superfund program, which was then experiencing a lot of contracting difficulties. Um, and so took that job, got my SES at the EPA, but within two or three years, um, their finance system, which they had been working on for quite a few years, a new finance system, was brought up in the middle of the fiscal year. There was no parallel processing going on, and it failed. And suddenly, an uh, $8 billion agency could not account for its money, could not account for any of it. So um, within, I was out of town at the time and received a call from the head of CFO and head of management administration basically telling me I was being reassigned to be the finance director to take over finance and this failed project, um, which I did. And we can talk about building careers on disasters, but that's really where I started to build my career on going from one disastrous situation to the next. Um, the reason I was selected for that position uh, was because I had uh, an MBA in finance from George Washington University, which, thanks to the Navy, who had funded a large part of it, I had gotten at night and also through a SECNAP fellowship they'd awarded me. So I was very lucky. I got my MBA before I went to EPA, and they put me in charge of the finance division. Now, anyone with an MBA knows that you learn nothing about government finance or accounting when you get an MBA in finance. You learn a lot about investments and portfolio management, but nothing about accounting and government. So um, I will say that was one of the most rewarding and enriching experiences of my career. Um, from EPA, I also then became the deputy over contracts, grants, and administration because of other scandals, respectively, that then came up. Um, and then from there became the deputy over all of management and administration, um, and from there became the chief financial officer. Um, so I had a wealth of experiences at EPA, which I think really formed a lot of my later successes in my career because that diversity of culture, the diversity of understanding and having to learn new functional areas and move from job to job really set me up to be very um, willing and happy to move to GAO when it was undergoing large amounts of change and cultural change under a new Comptroller General, David Walker, who had come in the year before. Right. And uh, going back to kind of just, you know, moving around in general, um, would you say that, um, how do you, how do you know when it's, you know, when you've, you've done this long enough, it's time to move on to something else and is it okay to move on to something else? I think for many of us in government, if we've been in our agency or department for a while, we develop a certain loyalty, right? We get comfortable. We know the culture well. We get we know how to maneuver within it, and we just really get very comfortable. I always began to become restless in all the organizations I was in, the Naval Shipyard, the Naval Air Systems Command, the EPA. After a while, after having... You know, gone into turnaround situations and done my best to turn around, 
innovated, done all those things, I would become restless. Um, each of my jobs, Paul, after I went to Navair, came to me. I didn't seek them out. Um, they came to me. Someone approached me to say, hey, we're looking at you for this. Would you do that? Um, and so I was very lucky that way. It was a question of I was ready for the change and the right opportunity came to me. And so I think for those of us who felt loyal about our organization, there may be discomfort with the change. There may be discomfort with risk in going to an entirely different organization. There may be discomfort with just leaving our comfort zone, but it is so well worth it. It is so important to keep expanding skill set and knowledge and understanding of how different cultures impact decision-making. I think that it's absolutely invaluable, particularly for those aspiring to senior executive positions, to get that diversity of functional background, if they can, but certainly of different agencies and departments. Right, and I think culture has changed a bit, right, because, I mean, many federal agencies I've, I've worked with, you know, especially for the executives or even below, they really encourage you to move around, at least within the organization, they sometimes even have mandatory, you know, rotations and such, right? They absolutely do, and there's an important reason for that. For one thing, the SES was originally conceived of and set up as mobility-based, meaning that executives would not only move within their organization, but they would move across government. That Then you can carry innovation with you. You can carry great ideas. You begin to develop a sophisticated sense of cultural nuance and how power works within different structures. An example would be that the Naval Air Systems Command very command and control, very hierarchical. You always knew your role. You knew where you stood. It was very command and control. When I left there to go to the Environmental Protection Agency, that was a very collaboratively based agency. Back then, it was not an older agency. It was a newer agency, very collaborative and consensus building. And my first year, I got a 360-degree feedback and man, you could really see that I did not get it because my subordinates were really happy, my aboves were really happy, and my peers slammed me, and rightly so. I had carried my kind of hierarchical command and control with me from my old organization into my new situation and totally did not read that this was a very different culture. So it was a great learning experience for me, and I learned it quickly. Right, yeah, I love those 360 reviews. I wish more organizations did that. I think, I think I've only worked at one place where they actually did that, but I'd say everybody should. You should go undergo one of those. Oh, I agree. I agree totally. It, it is such a wonderful learning experience, really. Well, uh, and one more thing on this topic. So and I think maybe I'm similar to you on this too, but it seems like listening to you that you know, you've always had kind of an intellectual curiosity and wanting to continue to learn new things. For example, you know, you got your MBA while you're working or you, you always want to kind of go to the next sort of position. Is that a fair statement? Is that something that drives you and maybe you can help others? I think for me, it is a very fair statement. I value competency a lot, so there's always a tug of war, right? In whatever position I am in, I really, really want to be competent in it. But after a time, 
I begin to become restless. And uh, if I'm not able to innovate there or make changes and see growth, both for myself but also for my team and the organization, it's clearly to me, Paul, a signal that, you know, without any animus whatsoever, it's just time for me to move on. Right. Well, um, so speaking of that, so now you mentioned that you uh, several times in your career, um, you know, you wanted to take on new challenges, even some places where there was basically a disaster and needed some 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 help. Can you tell us a little bit about that motivation? Well, you know, um, Rear Admiral Grace Hopper, who um, was a computer programming pioneer back in the day, she's an American computer scientist working for the U.S. Navy, said a ship in is in port is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. And I really agree with that. And I was really pleased that um, Controller General Jean Dodaro, um, who's the head of the GAO, said just this year at the National Leadership Training Conference that AGA sponsors, it's not that you don't take risk. You take risk in order to innovate. Without innovation, you lose relevancy. You take risk, but have to manage it and I think that that's always been my approach when I have either been forcibly reassigned into a disastrous area or voluntarily walked into it right the, the great thing about building a career on disasters or I think the, the business terms that are better used would be turnaround situations is that, that particularly in government, usually if you're willing to step in when something has gone seriously off the rails, like the finance system at EPA, right? They are willing to throw resources at you, and you can set conditions that you would not otherwise be able to set, and you have only one way to go, and that is up if you can persevere through it. So for me, for instance, at EPA, one of the conditions that I insisted on was that they bring back the former deputy in finance, a wonderful, wonderful person. His name was Jack Shipley, great accountant, steady on type of manager and person who had tremendous credibility within the finance division because this was a division now under fire, right? Being accused of having failed, people were getting pushed out of the way. So people were looking to leave that organization. And without that steadying influence from someone they knew and trusted, who was well-grounded and who had absolutely opposite characteristics to me. Jack was an accountant's accountant. He was steady on, inside man. And here I am, I don't have an accounting background, but I'm good at managing up. I'm good at managing out. I'm good at, at by that time, I'd already testified on the Hill a number of times, testifying on the Hill at what had gone wrong and how we could fix it and building those alliances externally that could protect us while we rebuilt what we needed to rebuild. So for me, I learned in that situation that if when you go in, you can assemble the right team and you can really push hard for the resources that you want and you are willing to take risk, managed risk, that you really can do an amazing job. Well, so, and actually that, that brings up something. You know, you're, you're mentioning, some, you've, you've kind of dived into some situations that you know, many of us would consider pretty scary, you know, come in here and kind of turn this around or, you know, uh, 
just like how you know take these risks and 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 see what we can do i mean how how do you i mean how have you personally over, over your career kind of been able to cope with these difficult situations things that would be scary to other folks um you know what was your kind of how do you keep yourself sane through all those things so i am going to actually start this uh part of the conversation with a quote from Vince Lombardi. I don't know how many people remember him, but he was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers back in the day. His team took five NFL national championships and they won the first two Super Bowls ever played. So he was a phenomenal coach and leader. But what he said was leaders aren't born. They are made. They are made by hard effort, which is the price that all of us must pay to achieve any goal which is worthwhile. And I have had that quote pasted above whatever desk I have been working at for years and years and years. Because when you take on a project that is a failure, that, is, that has high stakes, that is being watched, um, for me anyway, Paul, I would be the first to admit that I lost many nights sleep. I would wake in the middle of the night absolutely frantic that I hadn't done something or forgotten something or that the testing was not going well. Um, it was not unusual for me to just be so workaholic focused that I could spend 12, 14, 15 hours at work. And this was the days long before telecommuting. You didn't do that back then, you know, because I just had to get it done which took a toll on my health, which took a toll on my relationships, and which I would not recommend to anyone. However, I will say that it was a learning experience, okay? These situations can be scary. What I learned from it, though, was the importance of self-care. So that's when I actually began running every day. I ran every day as a way to bleed off stress. I began to set certain limits on time in the office. I began to really focus on getting a good night's sleep when I can, eating appropriately as opposed to a diet completely of caffeine. And back in the day before I quit smoking, um, you know, those unhealthy habits, I began to bleed away because if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not going to be successful in what I'm doing. It will all burn out, really. Right. No, that's actually good advice, too, while we're kind of sitting at home, everybody, you know, just to kind of focus on healthy habits and, you know, routines and, you know, just doing the work and getting through this thing, right? Absolutely. Well, a couple more topics for you here while I have you on the phone. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on diversity. Uh, I feel like that's a term that, you know, everybody throws out there, hey, we need diverse teams. And I wonder sometimes if people even really think about why, you know, I mean, it seems obvious, but maybe not so much. And I thought you might have some good insights on why that's important. Uh, well, I think that when many people hear the term diversity, they're thinking color, right? They're thinking race. They're thinking women need to be on the team and men need to be on the team. And all of that is true. But what I have learned, and I've learned it through experience, is don't overlook at all the fact that you need to have diverse skill sets, diverse ways of working, diverse people. So some examples, uh, in the financial management area at EPA, 
Jack Shipley and I were about as different as night and day, but I knew I needed him on that team. When I had my own teams uh, doing major weapon system acquisition at the Naval Air Systems Command, I knew I needed the most brilliant cost analyst we had. He was a very quirky person. So he was not necessarily top pick on a lot of other teams. But I needed his expertise because of the various weapon systems we were working on just required that. I also needed the smoothness of someone who was an experienced negotiator, low-key, not particularly good at cost analysis, but could read a room better than anybody. And so, you know, looking for different skill sets to supplement where you have a need is really important, particularly as a leader. No leader is going to have the total portfolio of necessary skills and abilities. And when it comes to judgment, when it comes to trying to make wise decisions, having opposing points of view is essential to me to making an informed decision. And so in that sense, I sometimes view diversity as beyond our typical ways of looking at it to really make sure that we've got diversity of views and styles and skills that can really make a strong team. Right. And I mean, you know, obviously not just have a diverse team, but you have to be open to listen to those opinions because, you know, if you just kind of follow your own instinct all the time, then what's the, what's the point even? Oh, I agree with you. You, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, let's turn to our sort of our final topic here, um, just in general. And then, then the reason I wanted to do this podcast was basically along the lines of mentoring, you know, lessons learned um, from, you know, people like yourself that have been through this. Um, and so I wanted to get from a, your perspective on mentoring, maybe just gen- generally as a, as a topic, um, but also, you know, what's the best way to, you know, do we need mentors? If so, how do we find them? Who are the best mentors? How do we use our mentors? So why don't we just start off with that? Um, I am one of the people who is a firm believer in having mentors and also in being a mentor. In terms of having mentors, Paul, I have had a mentor, not the same one necessarily, but I have had mentors throughout my entire career, starting as like the GS5, doing small purchases at the Navy shipyard, right? Um, I was very fortunate that the head of the organization who, uncharacteristically for that time, the highest ranking civilian in that organization was a woman. And she was a very strict person, very well-versed in all aspects of what we did, But she also would pull me aside to say, hey, you need to look at this in terms of what you're doing and focus more on this. And it was extraordinarily helpful. When I went to um, major weapon system acquisition, I also had mentors there. Same at EPA. I will say that I've had peer mentors as well, and I don't hear that talked about a lot. But in each uh, part of my career, I have had peers, particularly if I moved into a new organization or in a new functional area, who could provide me with insight 
as to, uh, you know, when I did not understand something or was just not um, being successful at what I was trying to do. People who had been in the organization for much longer than I had. Um, for me, I really need a mentor who knows me. Someone who knows my strengths, which is always lovely, but who more importantly understands what's not working in either the position or the environment or the role that I am playing and can honestly give me that feedback because without that feedback, I cannot change and I cannot be successful. Um, it hurts just like your first 360 degree may hurt, like mine did. Um, it hurts sometimes because I think we all like to think that we're pretty successful at what we do and good at it, but it is incredibly valuable. So if I go to people who know me, almost, almost always, not quite always, and certainly not with peer mentors, it has been someone um, that I have worked for, either directly or indirectly, um, who has been able to observe me in real life situations and can counsel me on what's working and what, more importantly, is not working. Right. And so, you know, how did you identify these mentors? Were there, were there people that were they people that you just kind of looked up to? You, you liked the way they comported themselves or did they reach out to you? I mean, how, how do you find a mentor? That's a question people often have. My experience has been that um, if, if it is someone who is successful in their career, like the, the first person I worked for at the Navy shipyard was many levels above me, but she reached out to me. There were not very many women in contracting at the time. Okay, so she would reach out to me and just provide me with straightforward, do this, don't do that. There were no nice, warm, fuzzy sessions at all. It was, I observed you doing this, you shouldn't do it. Or, I observed you doing that, you need to do more of that. You know, And it was usually just done on the fly. Um, however, later in my career, it was people that I developed a relationship with. Either I had volunteered to work on a project with them, and they came to know me that way, and I asked them to be a mentor, and they agreed. Or as I moved on to more senior positions, it was someone who, with whom I had worked. Uh, she was my supervisor, or he was my supervisor, and I asked them, could you mentor me in this area? Um, I was very fortunate. I was never turned down by any of them. Um, so I was very fortunate in that regard. Some of those mentors, I had my entire federal career, meaning long after I left the organization that I had been a part of, we had stayed in touch. And I was able to reach out to them when I hit roadblocks and needed counsel. Um, they had themselves very long and successful federal careers, and so they had better understanding sometimes of issues that I was facing than I did. Right, and you know another thing. Just um, I don't think they have to be formal. In many cases, I mean, I, I've had many mentors. I don't think I ever physically ever said, "Hey, can you, will you be my mentor?" It just kind of organically became that way, right? I think that that's exactly right. Um, I was assigned a mentor when I was part of an executive candidate program, and it clearly was not going to work. And I did then formally ask someone to be my mentor, who was my mentor for a good 20 years after that, 
in order to switch that out. But you're right. Most of the rest of them, it's just you went and sought advice and counsel and developed a relationship because I think it's important to put the time in to really forge a relationship over time. I think some of us get discouraged when we seek someone as a mentor. We have a couple of meetings or lunches or after hours with them. And then we say, oh, this isn't really working, and we abandon it. And it could be we abandon it too soon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just another thing, uh, you know, I, I, even if you just have people to bounce ideas off, it doesn't have to be, you know, as deep as a 20-year mentor. It could be somebody, like you said, peers and things like that. I think my, my advice or whatever is don't be afraid to ask for advice because I think early in my career somebody had said, said to me, Oh, don't ask too many questions or people will think you don't know what you're doing. And I think it's totally the opposite. It's, you know, ask as many questions as you can, but, you know, do it in a smart way. But, I mean, ask questions. I agree with you totally. Yeah, it's always better to ask questions, always, to me. If people don't think you're smart, that's on them. They have a problem. Well, on that note, uh, Sally Ann, I really appreciate you joining us here for this podcast. And uh, I I think we learned a lot and a lot of great things uh, shared with, with the audience here. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Paul. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out, agacgfm.org. And, of course, hopefully you're subscribed to our podcast on your phone. Get immediate updates as soon as they come out. Happy to keep keep these coming for you. A lot of great guests. Uh, it's actually a little bit easier to find folks now that folks are kind of at home, not having to commute as much. I'm finding a few uh, minutes on their calendars for me, so I appreciate that. And I will keep these coming. So until next time, this is your host, Paul Marshall, signing off for Accountability Talks with AGA.